as you find your place in Matthew 11. We're going to read verse 16 down to verse number 27. I'm thoroughly excited to bring this message this morning. It says in verse, actually start in verse 15. It says, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is likened to children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Verse 21, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. It's amazing that the next verse doesn't say, and they picked up stones to kill him. Because that's what the response would have been desiring in the hearts of the people. Just read Luke 4 when he said stuff like that in his hometown of Nazareth. Verse 25, at that time Jesus answered and said, one of the most shocking statements I've ever read in the Bible, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight, all things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save or except the Son, and he to whosoever the Son will reveal him. God, your word is, is so valuable. It's so much a treasure. I pray that we would be gripped by the glory of this. Help us to see you in the glorious pages of your word. And I pray that we would value your word more than anything this world could ever entice us to. Help us to find our focus and our attention and our obedience to you and your word. Thank you for the glory of Christ. Thank you for the privilege of being your children that you have called us and saved us and manifested yourself to us. And God, we pray today, if anyone doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would bring that reality to their hearts. And it's only you that can do that. And we pray that you would be gracious to the sinner and also to your saints, to your people. May you sanctify us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, man, you may be seated. Well, I had actually started working on this sermon about a month and a half ago, and then the Israel thing happened, and so we have taken a sabbatical from Matthew for about seven weeks or so, and we return, and I'm excited. It was hard because I really wanted to preach this a couple months ago, and, uh, and so last month we had a focus on the family, and we returned to Matthew. Um, so just, just by way of bringing us back up to where we are at the end of Matthew chapter 9, if you remember, Jesus looked upon the multitudes with compassion. And the Bible says in Matthew 9, verse 37 and 8, he said, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into his harvest. And, and that's what you have in chapter 10. Jesus calling his 12 disciples, commissioning them to preach. Then they were to report back to him. This was a preparation stage for them before their final commissioning in Matthew 28. So chapter 10 is Jesus instructing them to go and preach. And then chapter 11, Matthew highlights the responses. And the first part of chapter 11 is Jesus validating John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. He is now in prison for his preaching. And Jesus says of him in Matthew 11, notice in verse number 9, but when what went ye out for to see? 
a prophet, yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written. And what Jesus is getting ready to do here is quote the Old Testament book of Isaiah to validate John the Baptist was who God said he was going to be, the forerunner of Christ. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. And notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, John the Baptist's greatness was not inherent in John the Baptist. John the Baptist's greatness was based upon what he did and what he proclaimed. He was the voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Messiah. And it was his work that elevated his greatness. And so... In verse number 14, he says, if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Uh, This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 of Malachi 4. Elijah was to come before the Messiah, and he did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Jesus transitions this section into our opening text with the words of verse 15. And notice what he says again. Let's read verse 15 together. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And and what he's saying is, make sure that you understand the magnitude of what's being said to you. Make sure you don't miss the eternal significance of what is being said. You better make sure you value this message. If you ever listened closely to anything in your life, you better listen to this. And I would ask you this morning, friends, what you hear on Sundays from God's Word is the most important truth that you will hear. When you open the Word of God and study it throughout the week, that is the most important thing you're going to learn. It's more important than what you hear on Fox News or on Twitter or Channel 7 or any other news feeds that you listen to. And the value you place on God's Word will be seen in a few different ways. First of all, by preparing your heart for the Word. If you value this, First, you will be here, but secondly, you would prepare your heart for this. Cleanse your heart from distractions. Make sure that your cell phone is not being looked at multiple times as you personally read the Bible. You silence it while you're in a service. You're not checking different things on the phone. By being here early before the service starts gives weight to church. Show up, be ready and love the word prior to hearing the preaching of it. That's why Psalm 119, 18, he says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold the wondrous things out of thy law. He's praying this before he enters the text. <laughs> it's a preparatory stage. Oh, how I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day, as Psalms 119, 97 says. First of all, by preparing your heart as you come to the word is a way of valuing it. It's, 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 it's like the person who's playing basketball. If he doesn't get his shoes on and doesn't show up for practice on time and doesn't get to the game on time and doesn't stretch, he's probably not valuing the game. Why do we treat God less than a basketball game? Is he not a great king? And, and also by how attentive we are to the word, remove distractions, remove uh, things that can, can cause those things. Take notes, write down God's truth and what it speaks to you about. And I think about the difference between Martha and Mary. Martha had the mentality, she was busy, Jesus was teaching, but Martha was running about, busy about a lot of things. Mary sat and soaked in the word of God. And also by your obedience to it. John 14, 21, Jesus says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said, If a man love me, he will keep my words. John 14, 24, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. I mean, it's just constantly over and over. Jesus attached love for God to obedience to God. And so in the Lord's day, instead of valuing his words, sadly, they were skeptical. They became indifferent People treated his words lightly. They did not esteem his words. In response, we have the following text that we're examining this morning and how Jesus responds to people that are skeptical and indifferent. Those who treat Jesus 
as common as nothing special, who do not value him and take him for granted. Notice what he says to them in verse number 16. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in a market and calling unto their fellows. Luke's parallel account of this in Luke 7, 31, he says, Whereunto shall I liken the men of this generation, and what, and to what are they like? That added question in Luke 7's account of this same story reveals that Jesus is about to define them. <laughs> I think that's so tremendous. He says, what am I going to what, what am I going to compare you to? And this is, this is familiar Jewish teaching. This is what the rabbis would do. They would compare one thing to another. It's how they taught. It's a parable. So Jesus is, is about to give them the divine evaluation. I'm going to tell you what I think of you. That's a pretty heavy statement from God, isn't it? This is the divine perspective. So first we see Christ's evaluation of the skeptical and the indifferent. You know, it's one thing for a man to tell you, let me tell you what I think of you. It's a whole other thing when God says, let me tell you what I think of you. Have you ever had someone in life that no matter what you did for them, there was nothing you could do to please them? Anybody ever had somebody in your life like that? Everybody's raising their hand, pointing at a child right now, or <laughs> maybe a spouse, who knows? But everyone who has children knows what this can be like. Maybe a child, you tried to cheer up, you tried to make them happy, no matter what you said or what you did, they were indifferent. They didn't care. They didn't smile. They didn't say thank you. They didn't care. They were negative. They were complaining. They were sour. What do you call someone that you cannot please or satisfy? We call them a spoiled brat, don't we? Is that how we define them? According to Jesus, that's exactly what the people were acting like in that day. He says, you're like unto children. And he goes on to give them a parable of what kind of children they are like in the eyes of God. Because some children in the eyes of God were very good. We were to come to God like children with a childlike faith. But there's also a childlike spirit that is very bad. Now, let me break down the meaning of this parable. In those days, they didn't have designated parks or playgrounds. But they usually had a large open area, a marketplace, a town square, and they called it the Agora. It became a convenient setting for children to use as a playground, and Jesus gives them this clear picture that they all could see of children playing around in that market. Jesus speaks of them playing two different kind of games. One is a joyful game, one is a marriage game, and one is a sorrowful funeral game. Because those were the two major events that went on in that culture, very public events. Funerals would happen the day of a person's death. They would carry the body in a casket through the town. And it was a very public thing. And mourning, were, there, there were paid mourners in those days. They would mourn loudly and make a bunch of racket. And, and, and it was just a chaotic scene. And, and weddings were also a very public event. You remember in John 2, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, and, and it was a very public, very large event, and there were a lot of people involved. So children, as they often do, mimic their parents' game, their parents' activities, and that's what they were doing. So they created a wedding game. Somebody would have been the bride and groom, uh, and then you had the funeral, and somebody would have been the dead body and a been probably carried along. You could see little children doing these kind of things. And Jesus is saying, as their friends are calling out to them, they're saying, hey, let's play wedding. Let's play a fun game. And the kids are like, nah. He's like, no, let's play funeral then. If you don't want to do that fun game, let's play a funeral game. And they're like, no. And he says, no matter what you're being offered, no matter what you're being invited to do, you're responding with an indifferent, skeptical spirit. You would not participate either way. And he gives the parallel of how the people had responded to both his and John the Baptist's ministry in verse 18 and 19. He said, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he hath a devil. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a man gluttonous, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Jesus likens himself unto one who paid a, played a pipe or a flute in a wedding celebration, the joy, the healings, the blessings, all the goodness, the celebration. Yet in response to that goodness of Christ, 
they were angry and blasphemed him. And they wanted somebody that was more strict and austere. And so there's John the Baptist who came. And John didn't preach a lovey-dovey message. He didn't bring telling, he didn't come uh, with a smile. He came with a stern warning of judgment to come. And he preached a strong message of repentance. And in response to that, they called John demon-possessed because he did not socialize. He was restricted to the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey. And, and no matter what happened, they, they were fault finders. John was too isolated. Jesus is too public. John ate weird things. Jesus ate too much. John isolated. Jesus is too much intertwined with the people. They, they were eternal skeptics. No matter how Christ came to them, it was not good enough. I would ask you, is that you today? No matter what God has done, you find fault. You are skeptical. No matter what God does in your life, you see it negatively. Many Christians in churches today are jumping from method to method, trying to attract people to Jesus. But as Alexander McLaren says, if the message is unwelcome, nothing the messenger can say or do will be right. So what you have now is churches changing the message. I like what MacArthur adds. He says, the preacher's style is not the determining factor. The gospel, not the cleverness of the messenger, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The same word of the cross that is foolishness to those who are perishing is what brings salvation and is the power of God to those who get saved. We don't need to look for new methods. We just need to keep lifting up the message. Jesus is likening the people of his generation to children who are like spoiled brats that cannot be pleased. No matter what you do, they find fault. And he, and he concludes in verse 19 by saying, but wisdom is justified of her children. Luke 7.35 repeats the same words in its account. It says, but wisdom is justified of all her children. I know some Current versions read justified of her deeds, but it carries the similar same idea that it's the true wisdom, which is the carrying out of the truth, is justified or validated by her children or by what they produce. Generally, children are a reflection of their parents. Good, healthy children reflect good, healthy parents. They are the fruit of their parents' lives. Parents may blame their kids, but kids are often the reflection of their parents. They put the real you who are behind the scenes you on display in public. Oftentimes, parents will come and say, my children need counseling. And if you talk to any wise counselor there, they will tell you it's not the kids that need the counseling. There's a lot more parental counseling that needs to go on. They are just reflecting you. Here Jesus uses this truth as a spiritual analogy. The, and, and what he's saying is the credibility of both John's message and Jesus' message and ministry are validated by the fruit of the lives of those who receive their message from their spiritual offspring. The Lord says that the divine wisdom is justified in the minds of men by what she would bring forth. There are a lot of so-called experts in the world, a lot of people who have opinions about life. I always find it intriguing when a person who doesn't even have children like to tell people who do have children how to raise their children. I had a lot of ideas about raising kids until I had kids, especially when I went to Walmart. Can't they get their kids under control? You know, one day when I have kids, my kids will never act like that. And then we had our firstborn. And the Lord, I think, heard those complaints of my heart and humbled me very severely. And I thought, what godless person in, in, in Walmart designed toys at the checkout line? Y'all with me? Y'all with me? What are you doing? What are you doing to this parent? I got that child all the way through the line. And they're like, Dad, I want that. I'm like, you ain't going to get that. They're like, I'm, oh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to make you suffer for the next three minutes. You may make me suffer when I get out these doors, but you're going to, they just yell it out. I mean, they said, my child, I mean, they grab it. No, and, and, and you're like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about?
take after your mother. <laughs> no, that's not the truth. There's a lot of experts in the world and many opinions, but according to Jesus, true and wisdom are vindicated over time by what's produced. I remember in Chillicothe, I had a lady who had a secular psychology degree that she had read a lot of books that told her that disciplining children would ruin their self-esteem, that telling them no would ruin them. She never told her child no, ever. She never spanked him. She believed it was wrong to do so. And as a result, and I had warned her, and I said, hey, I understand. I took psychology studies, not at the level that you did in college, but I, I taken classes on that, and, and, and some of that, there's things that can be helpful, but um, I said, you need to understand that the people that are teaching that specific thing is, are very wrong, and uh, she didn't listen. Her kid was so out of control by the time he got to around kindergarten age, he could not even sit and function in a classroom. Th th those people who say those kind of things don't have wisdom. It doesn't work. Wisdom is justified by what it produces, Right? We live in a world of skeptics today, and, and, and I often tell people that are skeptical, I say, you know, one reason I know the Scripture is truth, that Christ is the way, that the Bible is the standard of ultimate reality, is for the last 20 years, as I've gone from one city to another city, preaching the gospel, seeing churches started, thousands of lives changed, I have seen that without exception, without exception, every person that I inject this truth into who receive it and apply it, their lives always get increasingly better. Always. And when I say better, I'm not talking about like financially rich and all of that. What I'm talking about is it, it turns prideful people into humble people. It makes people more patient, more kind, more compassionate, more loving, more like Jesus. It restores marriages to those who would submit to it. It restores families to those who submit and follow it. It carries people through the hardest challenges of life. It upholds those who are going through incredible sufferings. It produces incredible influence on others. I mean, I think about Eric Woodworth, who was just a kid that was an atheist, who was alcohol, he was just involved in any other sin you could think of, and just, in, just life going downhill, didn't want to live anymore, miserable life. And, and, and he would have told you that to where now he's a great father of three great young children growing up, loves his wife, turned him into a wonderful husband, wonderful father. He's preached in over probably 40 states in this country to thousands of people. He started a church over in a third world country, influencing hundreds of lives there. What but God could have done that to him? And I look the same thing with guys like Braden and Alex and Lisa and, and just the list goes on and on and, and, and the staff and the people here at the church. God's work in your life has caused you to become extremely, in a positive way, influential. If it's not real, then why is it creating such wonderful fruit? It seems that um, if you apply what is lined up with ultimate reality, it would, it would produce good things and that's what it does. That's what it creates. That's what it aids people in. But you look at the world in America who's turned more godless, and have they gotten better? No. They compoundingly get worse. You would expect, if the Bible were true, that those who line their life up underneath it would become more lined up with what is blessed, and that is what has happened. I've been amazed in life at those who reject the gospel, reject Christ, reject the word, whose lives are a mess, whose marriage is a mess, their children are a mess, but yet they will not let go of the steering wheel of their life. In pride, they hold on and they reject God in their skeptical, indifferent, and sometimes angered ways. And to them, I would say, as Proverbs 1.22, how long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity? And scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at the reproof of God's word. And God says, Behold, I pour out my spirit unto you. I'll make known my words unto you. This is the call of wisdom, but yet you read Proverbs 1, and the fools continue in their outrageous life that destroys them. They, they, the prodigal loves the sin, but they just don't like the pain of it. And God has so graciously designed pain 
to carve away at pride. Secondly, we see not only Christ's evaluation of the skeptical indifferent, but the cause of skepticism and indifference is in verse 20. He says, then began he to upbraid. That is not a preaching a... Upbraiding preaching is the opposite of Joel Olstein preaching. This is, this, is, this is John the Baptist preaching. Then he began to abrade the cities wherein most of their mighty works were done because they repented not. Um, this is where the message changes. This is where it goes from the gracious, merciful offer of salvation to one of stinging rebuke. You need to understand when men harden their heart against the gracious message of Christ, they will become the recipients of divine rebuke and judgment. They did not want Christ as Savior, now He comes as judge. Notice it says the place that He started this ministry of rebuke is in the cities, notice, where most of His mighty works were done. It was where He had done most of His healings and miracles. And what is fascinating about this is what city does he start with in verse 21? Woe unto thee. What's the city? Can you name one miracle that you've ever read that he did in Chorazin? No. Nowhere in the Bible does it say he ever did a miracle in Chorazin. But he did most of the miracles in places like Chorazin. Does that not just validate what John said, that if all the things that Jesus had done were written in a book, even the books of the world could not contain them? This is what it is. Chorazin, which was a city located about a mile and a half, about two and a half miles from Capernaum, which was where Jesus' main miracles, or his, his, his home base was set up. This was just a, another city that was a couple miles away from that. They would have been exposed to a large number of these miracles and the workings of Christ and his messages. And notice the cause of the Lord's rebuke. It says, because they repented not. He, he rebukes them in verse 20, because they repented not. You know, the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus were designed to bring people to repentance. Now, the word repent is a Greek word that means to change your mind about sin. It literally is aligning your thoughts with God. You agree with God internally. You're saying, God, what you say about sin, I agree with that. I, I, I agree with, with you that it is as wicked and evil as you say it is. And it is a turning from that sin in obedience to God first internally. And the reality of the internal change will show up where? Outwardly. If I said, I'm going to Walmart, if I told my wife, I'm going to Walmart, and, and then five, you know, I'm, I'm leaving right now, and then, but, but she sees me stay in the house for the next half hour, she would have concluded, did he change his, right? Oh, I know I'm still going to Walmart, but if I never do, then I never really planned on going. And it's insane, it's incredible to me when people say, Oh, you can repent inwardly, but it doesn't have to show up outwardly? You must conclude that they never repented where? Because if it really changed in, inwardly, it would be evidenced. It's so simple, isn't it? It's the people who are so afraid to attach works to true saving faith because they think that will mean a works-based salvation, which it doesn't. It just means a true salvation works. The fruit doesn't produce life. The root produces the fruit. But if the root's there and life is there, the fruit will be there. Is that making sense? Okay. So the Bible calls fallen man to repent, to turn to God. John preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter preached repentance on the day of Pentecost, and they said, what must we do? Uh, Peter said, repent and believe the gospel. Paul's message was repentance in Acts 20, 21. The message of repentance was the problem. People did not want to turn 
from their sin. They did not want to give up their life. They wanted to be the Lord of their life. And repentance is conforming our life to the will of God, and man rejects that. And instead, man wants to accept God on man's terms. They want, they want to define a God that lines up with them. Now, why could they not be satisfied? Why would they not accept John the Baptist or Jesus? And at the root of it was this. They had created the standard based on themselves. And Christ did not measure up to what they thought he should be. They wanted a Messiah who came and fit their life. They did not want to repent and to mold to God's standards. They based truth on themselves instead of God. God sent John the Baptist and Jesus Neither one of them was acceptable to them. When, when you come to God and you say, God, I'll accept you, but it's got to be on my terms, then you have ultimately placed yourself as God over God. Have you done that? Let me ask you, do you trust yourself more than Jesus? Do you? Do you trust yourself more than Jesus? Do you say, you know, I, I really believe in my, you know, 43 years of life, my vast knowledge of living in Ohio, 99% of the lifespan in a certain area in the 21st century, knowing just basically one language. You know, I think, uh, I, I think I know more than this book written over 1,500 years by 40 human authors in three languages from three continents became the most influential book this planet has ever known, still the number one seller in America in 2023. But, but you know, I, I think I know more than this, really. Really, by, by what standard do you rise as judge over the Word of God? Most of the time, people will say, well, you know, I really haven't read the Bible much. Well, if you're going to be judge of the Bible, reading it might be a good place to start. Before you stand in judgment of God, you might want to know what he says first. So close your app and, and read the Bible and your games and your TikTok. Truth is not on Google, it's in Scripture. We have too many people who've been Googled. And notice what Jesus said in verse 16. He said, this generation is like unto children calling unto their fellows or their companions. What does that tell us? You know what that tells us? Jesus likens himself and John the Baptist not as parents calling unto them, but as children calling unto them. Not in some elevated position, but he's like, we're like companions. We come so humbly, like calling their fellows. He came serving them with the words of heaven, with divine truth, with teaching and preaching, doing miracles, signs, and wonders. Yet it was not enough. He healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead. Still it was not enough. Nothing the Lord could do could satisfy the wicked, sinful, self-righteous, complaining, unthankful spirit of that generation. Nothing. Nothing. I fear today Christ would have the th same things to say of our generation, America that was so blessed by God, upheld by the Judeo-Christian principles found in the Word of God that raised this nation to heights that no nation had ever seen, where the average home has three Bibles in it all over the world, Christians are being persecuted, but not in America. We are blessed beyond measure in America with the Word of God, yet people don't read it. A Bible that was saturated by the blood of the saints through years and history to bring us the truth, and yet that's still not enough for us to read it. Today, people come and sing praises to the Lord, free from persecution, free from the threat of violence, but that's not enough to get people to church. They were up late watching a game. They get greeted by people who welcome them, who will teach their children the Bible, care for their children in the nursery, yet that's not enough. They can hear the Word of God clearly explained, preached on, and yet that's not enough. They have a chair with three-inch cushion seats with lower lumbar support and 70-degree heat, and that's still not enough. I wonder what God would say to those so blessed in our generation who can so often be unthankful and casually reject Christ, reject salvation, reject heaven, so indifferent, sitting as children in a Markham place, unmoved, numb to the Holy Spirit, numb to spiritual truth. I think for some of us, if Jesus preached here, they would still sit unmoved. That, that, that if Jesus said, hey, why don't you come and humble yourself, they would sit in their seat just waiting to go home. Is that you today? I don't think it's for most of us. I think the majority here love the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But are you willing to hear? Do you have a desire to obey today? Or are you just going through the motions? When is the last time you were so moved by the glory of God, it literally physically brought you to your knees? Let me say this out loud. If, 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 if you can go a month without getting on your knees in humble repentance and love of Jesus Christ, there is something wrong with you. There is. There is something wrong with your understanding of who God is. You say, I, I can't, I couldn't kneel down, I couldn't get back up. I, uh, I say, well, then if you wake up in the morning, roll over. And, and, and why would I say that? Because when you read the Bible, Moses threw his shoes off and bowed down before the glory of Yahweh. Ezekiel fell on his face over and over and over at the glory of God's presence. Isaiah fell down in holy awe before God. Peter fell down before Jesus, said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. John fell on his face in Revelation 1. One day every knee will bow, every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. If that's the correct response by everyone in the Bible who came into the presence of Almighty God, and we are never moved to do that, it must be that either we're not coming into the presence of God, or we don't realize the glory of that presence. Does that make sense? So there's something wrong with us when we don't do that. It's not with him. It's with us. What would Jesus say about you this morning? What does your response to Christ say, and what would Christ's response be to you? Friend, do you have ears to hear? Let me give you thirdly, Christ's judgment of the skeptic and indifferent. This is where the message gets very John the Baptist-ically. I don't know what the right word would be. I make words up sometimes over these years. It sounds like it should fit. And sometimes they're really words. And I'm like, I don't even know if I've heard that word before. So I know somebody's Googling it right now. <laughs> but here's Christ's judgment of the skeptics. Look at verse 21. This is, um, this is, this is heavy. This is, uh, this is intense. I can tell you, verse 21 through 24, there's no one smiling in the crowd after he gets done saying this. There's no, if people were taking notes then, they're like, I mean, this stuns people into silence. Jesus isn't going door to door saying, well, what kind of church would you want to come to? See if I can mold something over here and enticing you in, you know, maybe we get you there. You feel good. What he says in verse 21, whoa, that, 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 that word woe. That's a statement of divine judgment. That's a, I've talked about this before, but it's, there's two oracles, oracles of wheel, which are like akin to our word well-being. Like, like they, you could do an oracle of blessing, like where Jesus came in Matthew 5, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they. And, and those were oracles of divine blessing, divine pronunciations of blessing on those who would receive those. It's the same thing in, in Psalms 1. Blessed are they that walk not in the... And, and God starts with a blessing. It's also a word in the plural, which means it's like you're, you're significantly blessed. You're superlatively blessed. But here it's like you're, 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 you're under not the oracle of weal, but under the oracle of woe. That's why when Isaiah fell before God... He was pronouncing up to that point, woe judgments upon the nation of Israel. When he saw God, he said, woe is me. Because he saw the glory of God for the first time. And for the first time in Isaiah's life, he saw himself. And it devastated him. And so Jesus comes and he says, woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, thou shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which were done in thee had been done in the worst city listed in the Bible, Sodom, only to be surpassed by Capernaum. I can tell you, friends, this, this was a level of offense that we can't even comprehend. Because um, we, we, we just couldn't, we, we, we're, not in, we're not Jews in that day. This is, so Jesus, Jesus lists six cities here, three Jewish, three Gentile. Jews were uh, God's chosen people. These Gentile cities were, were wicked pagan cities. 
And he's saying these pagan Gentile cities will be judged less severely eternally than you. And why? Well, because the Jewish cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had been exposed to so much more of God's revelation. And the more revelation you're exposed to, the more accountability you have with God. This is a, this is a dangerous place to be for that. Because it will, it, you will either be more blessed when you come to Lighthouse, or you'll be more damned. Did you hear that? I say it unequivocally. You will either be more blessed by coming here, or you will be more eternally doomed. That, that's what's set before you, life and death. There is no like middle casual place. This is, this is ex- significant stuff. Now, Jesus up to this point uh, is telling them, you will be judged by the amount of revelation that's given to you. The more exposure, the more severe. And so both Chorazin and Bethsaida were near Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters. Again, Chorazin was about two and a half miles north of Capernaum. Bethsaida was also close in proximity to Capernaum. Bethsaida was the hometown, according to John 144, of Peter, Andrew, and John. Um, Jesus says their judgment would be worse than Tyre and Sidon, which are two seaport cities. If you go in Israel, here's Israel, the Mediterranean Sea, two seaport cities. They were just on that uh, coast there, west part of Israel. They were pagan cities. They worshipped Baal. Tyre was so bad that in Ezekiel 28, one of the kings of Tyre were compared to Satan. These, uh, these were sinful, wicked cities filled with violence, prideful, greed, immoral, profane, God-hate. I mean, they, they were godless. It was so bad that God destroyed those cities. So do you think it's shocking when the Jews who knew about Tyre and Sidon's destruction from the Old Testament books of Ezekiel 28, Jeremiah 25, and 47, that Jesus is saying, you're more offensive than those cities? When one repeatedly rejects the message of salvation, they will be met by the message of judgment from God. And, and he says in verse 21, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. <laughs> when, when he said that, what, what, what it's saying ultimately is this. When he says, if, if, if what was done in your cities were done in the wicked pagan cities of, of, of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. What he's saying is this, the self-righteous traditional religion of Galilean Jews blinded them more than Baal worship. Self-righteousness and morale, morality, moral religion that promotes self-righteousness is more blinding than worshiping Satan. Is that shocking? That's what Baal was. It was Satan. Self-righteous religion is more blinding than godly pagan religions. Nothing's more blinding than self-righteousness. That's why Satan loves to fill a nation up with churches that tell people how wonderful they are. You ever talk to somebody inside of the hold of, of certain groups they, they, they don't have a clue about salvation through Jesus Christ, but they're religious and go to church. They are so blind, they cannot see. Notice two truths from verse 22. He says this, but I say unto you, this shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Two truths come from that. First of all, there will be differing degrees of punishment in hell. Secondly, those who were exposed to the greatest amount of truth and rejected it will have the greatest degree of punishment. You know what that lets us know? Indifference to the Word of God is the greatest sin that can be committed. Did you see it? If rejection of the truth causes you to fall under greater judgment than the most godless, wicked, pagan cities, then the greatest sin that can be committed is rejection of the truth. So if you're here today, teenager, young person, and this is casual. You're, you're, this is very dangerous for you. This is extremely eternally altering for you. God will hold you accountable. Father, grandparent, youth, young and old, 
you better have ears to hear this. This is not like casual turning the TV on. That's why I say if this is a, it's important, you, need, you really need to prepare your hearts for it. It's like, hey, it's probably worth getting up on Sunday morning a little bit early to read and pray, prepare my heart in the Word of God, for the Word of God, so I can receive all the riches the Word of God has for me. Does that make sense? Uh, verse 23, he's not done. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven. Why, why are they exalted to heaven? <laughs> because Jesus set his home base up there. I mean, like, how many cities had Jesus set their home base up? The, the Son of God, Emmanuel, Yahweh in flesh, come into your town and preach. How many? There's one. It's Capernaum. You, you've been lifted up to heaven. Th this city that received more truth and miracles from Jesus, and yet they still did not accept him. He says, you're exalted to heaven. But you will not be exalted to heaven. You'll be brought down to hell. Instead of accepting the privilege that you've been given, you have squandered it. And in, in, in hell, Hades, the Greek word, some, many times used for the place of the departed dead, but here it's referring to the place of eternal judgment. The privilege that Capernaum had with so much exposure to Christ and truth, Jesus says, for if the mighty works, one of the most shocking things, had been done in thee, that had been done in the, were done in Sodom, it re remained until this day. You think he's correct there? You think Jesus is like exaggerating? Does Jesus exaggerate? No. He's like, if, if, if I did in Sodom what was been done here, they, 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 would have, they would have been blown away. They would have repented. Because, because here's why. One, one reason, you know the why? Remember when, remember when Paul landed on that island after they were on the ship? And a snake comes out and bites him. And all the pagan people on the island are like, oh, he must have been an evil person, you know. Because a snake bit him. And he escaped the sea, but he's not going to escape this. And, and, the, and the gods are going to judge him. And then he lived and they're like, he must be a god. Right? They follow experience. They're like, experience. Experience. And they just follow around. That's why a lot of these churches, they try to build up miracles in the charismatic realm. And they drive people to experience. And that's not what... That's not what's going to save. It's the Word of God. The problem in the days of Christ was the people were so self-righteous. It didn't matter about that stuff. They, they, they were hardened to it because their internal heart was so calloused by their self-righteousness, by what they thought they knew. And, and Sodom, you know how bad Sodom was? In Genesis 18, God sent two angels Angels always appear like men in the Bible. They came down into the city to deliver Lot out of the city. And the men of the city saw these beautiful men, and they wanted to rape them. They, they wanted to rape them so bad that it's, what's, what's incredible about the story is that it says men from all quarters of the city, both young and old. It was young and old and from all the parts of the city. They're like, man, these guys, you know, and most probably best looking guys ever walked on and, and they, they come in and they're trying to break down the door to rape these two guys. And Jesus says, as appalling as that sin is, it's still not worse than hearing the word of God as a moralist and rejecting the gospel. It's still not as bad as a monogamous relationship that is extremely moral, that would have been a great neighbor, but rejects the gospel, that sin is worse than the homosexual rapists. Anybody think that Jesus uh, offended someone that day? You want to know why they nailed him to a cross? Because he didn't preach like a lot of preachers did in this country that we're living in. Jesus would literally empty churches today if he came in. You think? Some churches would be like, we've never heard anything like this in our life. Yeah, because you have an apostate from the pulpit. And the people have no idea what the Word of God says. You ever go to a church and you're like, will you ever read the Bible? Or is that what we're doing? We're going verse by verse. You're reading it yourself. We put it up on the screen. We walk through it. Why do we do this? Because we need to know what God says on the matter. This is the only place we go. This is what we need. Now, now let me go to the fourth point. This is shocking. This is one of the th there, 
this happens to me as I read through the Bible. Sometimes I'm just like, I can't believe that. I just, I just can't believe what I just read. That's just so, that's so amazing to me. What, what we read in verse 25 through 27 just, just makes me fall on the floor when I see this inwardly. I'm just, like, how does the Lord respond when, when, when the skeptics and the indifferent respond to him in, in, skeptically, in a skeptical and in a different way? Was Jesus sad because they didn't believe? Yes, because we know he wept over Jerusalem, didn't he? Right? It, it broke his heart, obviously. He was sad. Did he want them to get saved? Yes, obviously. But you need to hear this. Unbelievers and rejectors did not define the Lord's joy. In the midst of being rejected, the Lord responds in verse 25 by saying, At that time, Jesus answered and said, What's the words? I thank thee. He responds to being rejected and leaving cities in judgment with thankfulness. Who leaves being rejected, being cast aside, treated indifferently, your message has been rejected, Christ has been rejected, judgment is looming over them, and he says, God, thank you. Anybody expect, is that how you respond when people reject the gospel? He said, I thank thee, and notice what he goes on to say, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You know why he could be thankful in the midst of a world that rejects Christ? Because the Father still sits on the throne. Is that what, is that what Psalms 2 tells us? The heathen rage, the people imagined a vain thing. They said, we will cast off his cords among us. God will not rule over us. And he that sits in the heavens, it says, shall laugh at them. As Spurgeon said, if his laughter be so terrible, what would his frown be? This is a God who sits unmoved and unaltered in sovereign glory. Anybody thankful that God's in charge? Jesus could worship because God's glory is intrinsic. His value's inherent. It's not based on the response of the blind. Because a blind man cannot see the glory of the sun, it does not lessen the reality of the sun's radiance. Dust doesn't define his glory. God is glorious because he's God. And Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And, and notice also in verse 25, he goes on. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And then he says this, because thou hast, what's the word? Hid these things. So this, that, that's not passive, is it? That's an active work of God. You are hiding this. You, you hid these things from the wise and prudent. And who did he reveal them to? Not from rebellious, spoiled children, but to those who humbled themselves like little babes. Now, who are the wise and prudent? Those are the arrogant, the proud, the skeptical. They set themselves as judge over God. This is the divine act of judgment of God upon those who respond to the gospel in arrogance. You don't want the truth, then you won't have it forever. Matthew 13, 10. And the disciples came and said, why speakest thou to them in parables? I mean, Jesus, this is confusing. Why aren't you making it clear? Verse 11, he answered and said unto them, because it's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, notice what he says, it's not given to them. The only way someone can be saved is from God. You know that? You don't lead someone to Christ. You bring them the truth and God, bring, Jesus leads them to the Father. I don't save people, Jesus saves people. When men respond in pride toward his word, when they place themselves as judge over God, his word instead of God, and his word being accepted, it will now be their judge. He will keep the truth from them. This is, this is divine judgment. This is what skepticism and indifference is. It is to look down on God's word. It sees it as untrustworthy, not good enough. The skeptic trusts in his own opinion over the eternal word of the living God. They're indifferent to God's truth. They've counted themselves unworthy in the words of Christ of eternal life. If that defines you today, God will reveal, God will not reveal his truth to you. He will keep it from you. 
you will sit in places like Lighthouse Baptist Church and never be moved. Never. Never. You'll sit here forever unmoved. You'll be like, why do my parents get excited about Christ? Or why do my spouse get excited about Christ? But I just don't get anything out of it. Because he won't let you. He won't let you. God won't let you. You don't want him. He won't let you have him. You treat me like nothing. You, you, you think this is not worthy. You will never have this. You'll never have it. Forever. And you won't know your blindness until the day you stand before Yahweh in heaven and you'll think, how did I miss it? Because empirical evidence doesn't create faith. God creates it. Amen. You didn't come like that little child in Awana, did you? You, 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 you put evolution up against God and doubted the king. <laughs> it, it is an amazing thing to me over the years. And, and so Jesus, Jesus is worshiping the Father for hiding the truth. I'm thankful, Father, you're keeping it from them. Is that shocking? Some of you can't get that around your brains. You're, you're, you're half Arminianist. You, you, you can't even, you're, it's too much. It's too far of a reach, isn't it? <laughs> Matthew eleven twenty six. 26. Why did he do this? Now, why does he do this? Verse 26. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. You know why he did it? You know why he conceals from some and reveals to others? Because that's what pleases the Father. And you know what pleases the Father? Is what absolute justice is. Righteousness, perfect justice is what is produced and what pleases the Father. Verse 27, notice what he says. All things are delivered. Now, now when he says all things are delivered, it, it would be better said having every, like it's a single act of time. All things have, have been delivered. So are delivered is more the idea they have, everything has been delivered to me of the Father is the idea. It's, it's when Jesus said, all authority or all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now the Father has given all things to the Son. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why in Revelation 5, he's the only one that can open up the title deed and judge the earth. That's why John 5.22, Jesus says, for the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son that all men should honor the Son, how much? Even as they honor the Father. If Jesus is not God, that is blasphemy, isn't it? Honor me like you honor the Father. And he goes on in verse 20, Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. He says, and no man, no, look, look what he says. Please don't miss this. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, and neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son or accept the Son. He says, no one knows who the Father is except me. Only I know him. And only the Father knows me. There is a mutual, exclusive relationship, knowledge that they have one of another. And Jesus came to exegete or reveal the Father to us. He says, I'm going I'm I'm to make him so clear to you that I'm going to put on human skin. I'm going to put on flesh and blood, and I'm going to be born among you and live among you and show you deity my whole life. And everything I do is exact representation of the Father so that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It couldn't be more clear, could it? And, and he says at the end part of verse 27, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him or wills to reveal him or wishes to reveal him, the Greek here is more than mere future. It's the idea of whoever the Son is willing to reveal Him. You, you could say it like that, to whomsoever the Son is willing to reveal Him. The only way you can know the Father, listen to me very closely, is if Jesus is willing to reveal Him to you. It's the only way you'll know Him. Did you get that? It won't be because I did it. The only way you'll get it is if Jesus says, I'll give it to them. Lights turned on. Divine illumination. What, what happened in Luke 11, Luke 24? They, they couldn't get it. He's like, touch me, feel me, see me. They're like, they, it said they still couldn't believe. And it says, and Jesus opened up their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And then they got it. It's divine enabling. Supernatural, friends. You think we should pray before we come to church? Lord, open my eyes 
that I may behold wondrous things out of that law. You think we should pray for the person, God, open their eyes, they're not saved, give them an understanding heart. And who, who does Jesus reveal them to? You know, not skeptics, not the indifferent. You treat this word as nothing, you'll never, ever be saved. You'll never be saved if that's how you treat it. I want to read for you Mark 4, 23. Listen to this. We're almost done. It says, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Now, now you need to get what I'm about to say here. If, if you have ears, you need to hear this. He said unto them, take heed what you hear. I'm going to put this in kind of simple language. The King James has kind of a difficult reading of this. Take heed what you hear, how you're hearing, what, what, like, like what measure you're hearing. He says, with what measure you meet. Now, now, what that is saying, with, with the level of listening and attentiveness that you like, put out there, it, it will be measured to you. Like The knowledge of that truth will be measured to you in proportion to how much you desire to have it. And unto you that hear shall more be given. For thee that hath shall be given, and he that hath not from him shall be taken even with that which he hath. What that means is this. When you come to the Word of God, when you come, that's why I say come with prepared hearts, come with a desire to obey it, and you come with like, Lord, I really want to receive, I really want to know, I really want to get this, I really want to learn. And, 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 and it's just going to be poured out to you. But a person, it's like, you know what? They, they just treat it casual, treat it lightly. God's like, no, you're, you're, you're going to get... You come with, with, a, with a cup that's already been filled. There's nothing going to be given to you. That's why you can have people leaving like so thrilled by what God's done to them. And some people are like, I didn't really get anything out of that. I mean, there's people literally throughout this day, preach six, seven hundred people. There'll be some people like, eh. And other people, they'll find themselves repenting on their floor, you know, and coming and just really getting, going out this week, getting serious with God. What's the difference? Is it the skill of the preacher? Are you kidding me? How weak this guy is. It's the person who's listening. You could, have a, you could have a weak preacher that has a powerful text, and that text is what will radically change lives if they come with an open heart. I sit almost weekly with people who are not saved and skeptical of the Bible. They're indifferent at times. I challenge them. I say, why don't you... I said, this is the most valuable thing. You, I said, I know you don't understand it now. I said, but this is the most valuable thing on this planet. Truth is the most valuable thing on the planet. I said, if you could just take this and just... I said, just go to the Gospel of John, read, read one chapter, write down the questions you have, and just start walking through that. I'll sit down, go through, and answer those things for you. Seek the truth. I said, if you take one step to God, he'll take ten to you. He will pour out the truth unto you. The people who do that, it radically changes their life. But sadly, there are people who are just like, no. And they just go on. And they lie to themselves their whole life. They're like, well, I said in church, you know, I grew up in church. Right? Yeah. As a deaf person and as a blind man. You think God's cheap. You, you thought you could find Bible truth at the dollar store? When you come with that kind of a spirit offering God such little desire, He will never give it. You, so you grew up in church. Right. And your judgment will be more severe than the homosexual rapist in Sodom. Is that, a, is that an offensive message today? Next week, we're going to dive into a positive message. <laughs> Verse 28 through 30. I just knew I didn't have time to get to it, and I just wanted to preach that next Sunday. So it'll get better, but, but you just need to know, Jesus, who preached a gracious message, are we seeing here where, where there's a, when, when, when grace is shunned, what happens? So uh, next week we'll look at that. The story is told of a small resort area along the East Coast that was having an open town meeting concerning some financial problems they were facing. Among the two dozen or so people was one man no one seemed to know who was apparently visiting the area and had just dropped in for the meeting. He started making a comment here and there about some of the projects, but he kept getting interrupted. Nobody valued his opinion, so he kept silent. Finally, he left early. Just as he went out, someone arrived late. They came in breathlessly, and they said, what is he doing here? Did someone invite him? Is he going to help us out? 
they said, what are you talking about? Who was that man? And they said, that was John D. Rockefeller. (laughs) And you know what they did that night? They missed it because they didn't know whose presence had come in the room. Friend, don't miss it today. Don't miss what God has offered. Let's all stand this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth, the gospel. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, may our hearts be ready to receive what you have for us. Lord, bless. Pray if anyone doesn't know Christ, may today be the day of salvation. Keep us humble and receptive to your truth in Jesus' name.